Who would have ever thought that an apple could change the course of history? A perfect creation interrupted by temptation. But by an apple? Now, in my life, there are far more foods that are far more tempting than this luscious and wonderful apple. How about a cheesesteak? Or a meat lover's pizza? Or, for those of you health nuts, you're dreaming of a big bowl of kale, right? Or something crazy like that. Ice cream. We had community group last night, and there were so many delicious things on the table. All of them were much more tempting to me than this. Yet, the course of history has changed by an apple. But you see, for the storyteller, the what question of the fall, the story that we're entering into, it's really not the point of his story. And so the apple is really not the point of the story. Uh, Whereas if you were with us last week, we we kind of challenged each other to not get focused on the how question of creation, like how did God do it? And rather to follow the storyteller as he tried to show us the importance of the who, that God is big and God is close and the why, because God loves us and loves creation. Now, we have to be careful not to become perplexed by the what question of the fall, and instead follow the storyteller as he wants to show us the how reality of the fall. See, for the storyteller, it's not about an apple. And in the mind of the storyteller, the apple is just a symbolic placeholder. But the how question it tells a universal story. The how question, it tells our story. And so this morning, we want to jump back in to the story of God as we think about the how of the fall. Now, if you were with us last week, you remember we talked about creation. And you remember that we focus on these three kind of big themes about God. First, that he's big, right? He's bigger than all things, that he's outside of creation, that he was before creation, that he's outside of time, he's unbound by anything we know, and yet, he's very close to us, that he loves creation so much that he's entered into real, genuine relationship with it. Why? Because he loves us. That we were the only thing that would actually make God stop and rest. Not because he was tired, but because he wanted to enjoy the creation that he had made. This is the story of creation. And we asked the question at the end, so what? And we said the so what was worship. The whole point of the story of creation is to get at this idea of worship. That is that God above all other things that ask for our adoration and worship in this world. He deserves it, and we should give it to him. Ascribing worth to God above all things. But what we find now as we turn into this next chapter, this next part of the story, is that worship is still very much at the center of the story, but the object of worship is beginning to be tarnished, and changed. 
if creation was meant to lead humanity to worship God, what we find in the story of the fall is that creation begins to turn their affection towards themselves. A very famous proverb says what? That pride goes before the fall. And we see it in this story too. Now, most of you are familiar with this story. We won't take uh, the time to read it, but let me summarize it for us. Adam and Eve are living in this lush garden that God has created for them. He's given it to them. It is theirs to take the bounty of and to care for. But there's this one section of the garden, this one tree, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God has said, you, you, you should not eat from that. That is not for you. The rest of it is yours. And of course, the serpent, who we later find out in the scriptures is Satan himself, enters the picture and he begins to tempt them. Begins to say things like, did, did God really say that if you ate from that tree, you would die? Did he really say that? No, he, what he really doesn't want you to know is that if you eat from that tree, you, you'll be like him. And this temptation begins to take root in the hearts of Adam and Eve, and so they take from the tree and they eat it. And then they find themselves naked and ashamed, and they cover themselves and they hide from God. And God finds them, and God speaks to them, and he announces that there's going to be consequences to the choice that they've made. There's going to be consequences in their relationship to the earth, in their relationship to each other, in their relationship to God. And it's going to drastically change the story from here on out. He said pride comes before the fall. There are three sort of ways that I think this plays out in this story. The first is we see the pride of humanity in their aim, right? That is, that what is it that they're after? What is the the central reality of this temptation? What has kind of captured their heart and their affection? What is their aim? What are they trying to do? The second is, we see it in their shame, right? What happens to them after they engage in this? And then the third, we see it in their choice to blame. That is, how do they deal with their shame? So we've got aim, what are they after? Shame, what they get from their aim. And blame, what they try to do with their shame. And in all three of these things, we see this issue of pride just showing its ugly face all around. See, here's what we need to understand from the storyteller. The aim of Adam and Eve, the aim of the temptation, is not to present an apple that cannot be denied, right? It's not to present an apple which is so tempting that they can't think of eating it. There was plenty of other things they could have eaten from. And as wonderful as an apple is, we have to at least acknowledge that the other stuff was as least as good, right? But what's happening here is something much deeper. See, the temptation is not an apple. The temptation is autonomy. The temptation is who gets to choose what is right and wrong. Did you notice what the name of the tree was? Tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? What is happening there? What is the storyteller trying to tell us? That this whole reality is symbolic of control. Who gets to decide what is right and wrong? 
Who gets to, to choose what is good and bad? And maybe even deeper yet, who do we trust with the good of our lives? We all want good things for our life. Who do we trust to accomplish them? And lying at the action, lying at the feet of the action of humanity, of Adam and Eve, who are pictured in this story, is this idea that most of the time we trust ourselves. Most of the time, if not all of the time, we trust ourselves. See, the issue of the fall is less about the action of eating the apple and very much more about the direction of the affections of our heart. What is our heart really given to? Who is our heart really given to? And this, in turn, affects the choices that we make. The apple, friends, was not too great a temptation to overcome. The opportunity for autonomy was absolutely too great a temptation for them to overcome. And, I'll just speak personally, I won't speak for you, but I've got a feeling you're with me on this. The same is true for me. There are plenty of things that tempt me in this world. All of them are tempting because at the core, I struggle to trust God with my life. I struggle to not believe that I can make the best choices for myself. <laughs> I, struggle to not to, I struggle to believe that God has my best interest at heart all the time, right? Because I read some of the things he thinks I should do. That I shouldn't just spend all my money on myself, but I should be generous with it. That doesn't seem to make sense, right? What was, what's better? Sometimes we grab for autonomy. That that I should be someone who is moderate in realities of life instead of excessive. And, And the list goes on. All of our temptations are rooted in whether or not we trust that God is actually good. And therefore, whether or not we trust that God has our best intention at heart when he shows us how we ought to order our lives. That's the, that's the heart of the temptation, isn't it? The serpent says, God just doesn't want you to do that because he doesn't want you to be like him. In other words, he, he wants to kind of withhold from you something good. Do you see that? And secretly, we kind of believe this all of the time. Here's the deal, friends. We do not set out in our life, even the most atheistic person in here does not set out in their life to say, you know what, I'm just going to rebel against God because that seems like the coolest thing to do. We don't set out to rebel against God. There actually is a process that happens. And Paul, when he's writing a letter to the Romans, he kind of reflects back on creation and the story of Adam and Eve and he shows us this process, and I want to read this to you, and you can read it up on the screen uh, or follow along as I read it to you. This is Romans chapter 1, verse 18. It says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth 
by their wickedness. Here we go. The first part of the process is that we tend to suppress the truth about God. He goes on, listen to what he keeps saying. Uh, Since what what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has, has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what he has made, people are without an excuse. The first step in this process of the fall is this reality of suppressing the truth about who God is. Everything that we said last week in understanding who God is, that he's big, that he's come close because he's love. If we begin to suppress that, if we begin to believe other stories that want to define us other than our creator, we begin down the path of moving away from this life of worship. And Paul says, because he's reflecting deeply on creation, he says, everyone can see from creation who God is. And certainly, Adam and Eve could. But at the moment of temptation, what is their thought? Hmm. Well, yes, God is the creator of all things. And yes, God has come close. And yes, God is providing for all of us. But is God really good? Why has he withheld something from me that I think could be helpful to me? Begin to suppress the truth about God. As Paul goes on. He says in verse 21, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. The second step in the process, Paul is so so astute in saying this, is that they fail to glorify God. First step, we suppress the truth about who God is. Second step, we fail to glorify God. The Greek word that Paul uses in Romans here is the word doxa. And it means the praise or glory, but it has a deeper meaning than that. It's this idea of having a really good opinion of somebody, and based on that opinion, giving them praise and accolades, right? So it kind of goes right into this idea of suppressing the truth. That you see how the process works? Having this right opinion about God, and therefore giving him the praise and the honor that he deserves, When we begin to suppress the truth about who God is, we begin to withhold the honor that is rightfully due Him. And then third, think about this for a minute. We fail to give thanks. At the heart of every rebellion is a heart which fails in gratitude. Oz Guinness a great Christian thinker, said that rebellion against God does not start with a closed fist of atheism, but with the self-serving heart for whom the phrase thank you is redundant. The great Russian novelist Fedor Dostoevsky said that man, this is him, not me, Man, if not incredibly stupid, is certainly monstrously ungrateful. We begin to suppress the truth about who God is. Is he really God? Is he really good? 
begin to stop giving him the honor and start returning it to ourselves. We should be autonomous. We should be exerting control over it. We cease to be grateful for the entirety of the garden that he's given and instead focus on this one section that we really think ought to be ours. And yet somehow God, in his ungoodness, hasn't given it to us. Do you see the process? How it's unfolding? And then listen to what Paul says to finish. Their, their thinking became futile. Their foolish hearts were darkened. All, darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. This is an exact uh, sort of commentary on Adam and Eve, right? Because part of the temptation of this is, hey, if you eat of this, you'll become like God. You know, they thought they'd become wise, but they really became fools. The truth is, they didn't really become like God. They actually became like Satan the one who attempted them, because he had preceded them in doing the very same thing. Fascinating. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings, birds, animals, and reptiles. Listen, certainly Paul is being instructive on the culture in Rome that he finds himself in, in terms of talking about all this wickedness and animals and things like this. But do you see how it has its root in Adam and Eve? Because they exchanged the glory of God for an image. Who was the image? It was them. Do you remember? Very clearly in the story of creation, God says that we will make man in our image. And so Adam and Eve, they do not set out that day in the garden to explore this forbidden part. But when they meet temptation, they find themselves, first, beginning to suppress the truth about God. Second, failing to give God the glory and the honor he deserves. Third, ceasing to be grateful for what God has given them. And then finally, exchanging God's glory for something created in the image of God. Friends, the how question is the question of this story. This week you will find yourself tempted in some way, right? Big, small, medium, I don't know. Let me challenge you with something. Take this four-step process and work back through it as you face your temptation. Whatever your temptation might be, whether it's got to do with food or got to do with work or got to do with Uh, other people or or got to do with sexual, whatever it is, whatever temptation you might face this week, I get it. Sometimes they're so hard-hitting, you don't have time to sort of sit down and negotiate with yourself. But the more you do this, the more you'll be able to try this, right? The first thing you do as you face temptation is you begin to say, okay, what is the truth about who God is? First question. I'm not going to suppress it, so I'm going to speak it to myself. The second thing that you do as you're facing temptation this week, after not suppressing truth, is you give God the glory that he deserves based on the truth you've just spoken about him. And in so doing, you acknowledge that what he is, you are not. And then third, you begin to give thanks to God for all of the good things that you have in your life. And on the basis of this, you make a willful decision to partner with the Holy Spirit and say, I will not exchange God's glory for my autonomy. This is the how question 
of the fall. So the result of this aim of Adam and Eve finds them filled with shame, right? The story says that immediately after, they, they looked at themselves and they knew they were naked, right? It's a weird part of the story, right? They knew that they were naked. Of course, nakedness has to do with shame and sort of being exposed to everyone around them. Kind of who they were was out there. It couldn't be uh, hid from anyone. There's no upstairs closet that all the clutter gets shoved into, right? There's no two-car garage that can kind of have everything that you don't have any place else for, you know? There's no basement where you can push stuff away. You know, you can't move the crumbs in your car underneath the seat. So he says they're naked. They're fully exposed. They are to, well, they're out there, right? I was going to quote Seinfeld, but we don't go there. They're out there. But understand something about their shame. In their shame, we also see mostly their pride. There's two ways to, to think about shame. It could be that they're experiencing shame because they have, in essence, really harmed God by their choices. This is, this is a, a God who is in relationship with them. He's just not just some far-off being that, oops, they didn't follow his command, uh-oh. This is someone who they spent time with, who they had a relationship with, who they cared about and who they knew cared about him. Part of shame could be that, that they harmed that relationship, but that's not really what we see from the storyteller. Really what we see is that it is an inward look again. They look at themselves and they, then they are ashamed, right? They don't look at God and feel ashamed because of what they've done. They look at themselves and they are ashamed. What will people think about me, right? This is how we respond sometimes, isn't it? It's, it reeks of our pride. And then when God finds them hiding in the bushes somewhere, we see this final act of pride as they respond to their shame by casting blame. Right? God speaks to Adam first. He says, what did you do? And what does Adam say? She made me do it. Right? And then God says to the woman, you did this? And what does she say? The serpent made me do it. Right? And you speak to your kids all the time. Why did you do that? Well... My brother did this, right? Why did you do that? Wow, my sister made me do that. Or you think about your, why you responded some way you did at your work. Well, if you only knew my boss, right? And I've known some of your bosses, and I kind of get it, right? It's a little secret between you and me. But this is the human condition as we think about kind of the error of our ways. Rather than just owning what we've done, we begin to look at everyone else and see why they caused us to have this mess in our lives. Friends, you want to know why the world is in the condition it is? The storyteller has just told us the story. We've got a bunch of people, ourselves included, who would rather pursue autonomy than worship the Creator. And in responding to the mess we've made as in the midst of it, we've turned inward and tried to to guard and protect ourselves from everyone else, and then when we kind of get exposed, we blame anyone else we can, right? This sounds like my life, unfortunately. This is the story of why our world is so incredibly broken. 
It is a result of this pursuit of autonomy, this, this desire to sort of be in the place of God instead of worshiping God as he is in our presence. The result is that all of humanity's relationships within creation are deeply, deeply traumatized. Every single relationship in creation is in trauma. And we see this in Genesis chapter 3. Based on our pursuit of these things, what do we know? Suddenly now, in our relationship with the physical world, there's going to be pain, God says. There's going to be brokenness. There's going to be toil. It's going to be hard. Ultimately, there's going to be death. In our relationship with each other, God says, even this very close relationship between Adam and Eve, husband and wife, is going to be really hard sometimes. It's going to be hard to submit to each other. It's going to be hard to sort of relate to each other. And that much more to everyone else around us. And friends, you need to look no farther than the very next chapter of the story. When Cain, because he is annoyed at his brother, right, blaming, feeling shame because his sacrifice wasn't accepted, blaming his brother, murders him. Immediately from an apple, we go straight to murder, which is perhaps the most heinous of all rebellion against God. Why? The same story. It's the same story. And there's trauma in our relationships with each other. You want to know why it's hard to relate to other people? You know why it's hard to have a healthy marriage? You know why it's hard to have a good parent and children relationship, you know, it's hard to have a good boss and employee relationship because your boss is just as traumatized by the reality of sin as you are. And your kids are just as broken in this world as you are. And your husband or your wife is just as messed up in this world as you are because we're all trying to figure out this pursuit of autonomy that leads us to shame, that makes us hide and blame everyone else. This, and even if somehow you were to get all this right, that whatever billion other of, of us are still struggling with it. This is why our world's the way it is. And then ultimately, we have a broken and traumatized relationship with God. God says, as much as I love you, you can't be here anymore. And He moves them outside the garden. And he protects the entrances to the garden. And there's this separation between God and humanity that is instituted. And we see it so prevalently in the next several chapters of Genesis when it says that wickedness increases in the world. Leading even really all the way up to the Tower of Babel where they're doing the very same thing that happens in the Garden of Eden. Trying to build themselves to God. A world that is broken. Creation says we should worship God. (laughs) Temptation says we should worship ourselves. We should pursue autonomy. After all, who is better to make the right choices for your life than you? After all, who do you trust to have the good life? 
And as we begin to buy into that wrong theory, we suppress the truth of who God is, we refuse to give God the honor he deserves, we become people who are are not thankful for what we have, and we exchange the glory of God for the image of God that is ourselves. And we find our relationship with this world, with each other, and with God broken and traumatized. And so the story has hit a major bump in the road. A major blockade. It seems almost unrecoverable. And yet, there remains one constant truth. The same truth we spoke about last week. That God is love. That even in this most heinous failure and in our collection of mistakes. He does not cease to love us. Three things happen in this story that are just remarkable if you think about them in context. The first is, you ever think about this? What are Adam and Eve doing after they screw up? They're hiding, right? What is God doing? He's seeking them. Isn't this fascinating? He's not seeking them in such a way as to scold them, right? There's consequences to what they've done. Whereas we are prone to be people who are constantly hiding, God is always the God who is seeking us. Remember the story of the prodigal son? The father in that story who represents God. He stands on the edge of his property and he looks far off always constantly looking for the younger son who had run away. This is our God. This is the God who deserves our worship. The God that no matter what you have done, is seeking you because he loves you. Look at the second thing that God does. It says he clothes them. Now, isn't this, am- this is amazing, right? Well, you're thinking, well, they know they're naked, now they need clothes. Well, that's not the point, Right? They had attempted to make to fashion some fig leaves to clothe themselves. And God said, no, 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 no. I get it that you want to sort of repair the situation as best you can. And instead, he provides animal skins to clothe them. He says, in essence, through sacrifice, you'll be covered. That God is providing for their needs with radical mercy on the heels of their radical disobedience. Do you see this? This is astonishing. Friends, our God is the God who visits the murderer in his prison cell on the heels of a murder. And in the same way, our God is the God who seeks you and who puts his arm around you in the moments after your greatest failures. He covers you. He sees your nakedness, and instead of shoving it in your face, as I might be inclined to do, he provides a covering for you. And as if those two weren't enough, the third thing is the most astonishing 
God in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 speaks an amazing word of prophetic truth. He says that the woman, Eve, will one day give birth to a son. And her son will one day deal once and for all with the serpent. That is, with the whole mess of evil and the whole nastiness of this world. And and it says, when the serpent will bite his heel, but when he crushes the serpent's head, all will be right. Tim Keller has this, this, this fascinating picture and story of how this works. Imagine right now if the most venomous and deadliest snake quickly slithered its way into the midst of us. And imagine if the bravest person amongst us, you're picturing me, that's fine, I'll do it. <laughs> if, the, if the bravest person amongst us went right for the snake and began to, to stomp on it, stomp on it, stomp on it, finally crushing its head and saving the rest of it. But in the process, the snake reached up and bit the heel. And in saving everyone else, this person died. Does this sound like a story you know? Friends, if you've not heard the name of Jesus, let me introduce you to him this morning. He is the ultimate son of the woman. He is the one who rushes to the middle of the room and stomps the snake and taking a vicious bite on the heel that we know as the cross of Calvary, he ultimately saves and rescues every single person who would believe on him. When God says one day you'll have a son who will crush the serpent, and then later Eve gives birth to a son, God's promise becomes tangible. And when Jesus shows up on the scene and enlivens this story with flesh and blood, we see once and for all that the love of God is far greater than the screw-ups of humanity. Friends, Jesus too found himself in a garden struggling deeply with an issue of a tree. wrestling with temptation about this tree. And whereas in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, very easily, it appears to us in the story, conceded to their temptation, grabbed onto their personal autonomy, and chose rebellion against God. In the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus literally sweated blood, wrestling with the tree of Calvary, he utters the most beautiful words of love that you will ever hear. Not my will be done, but Father, yours. In other words, not my autonomy, but yours. And in so doing, he takes on the cross the venomous and fatal bite to the heel from the serpent, but rescues all of creation that would 
Catch this. Who does he rescue? Those who will not suppress the truth about who Jesus is. And instead will give glory to him. And in so doing, be thankful for the life that he has given us. Whereas in the story of the fall, humanity, and in the story of my life, me, continue to reach to be where God is. In the story of love, God descended to be where we are so we might be rescued. Friends, our world is a broken, broken and painful place. The storyteller has made sense of why it is. But even as we struggle in the midst of this life, we believe that Jesus has already done what needs to happen in order to set this world right. So this morning, my plea to you, and I pray your plea to me is, stop exchanging the glory of God for the glory of yourself. And allow the storyteller to continue to to unfold the story that continues from the fall, ultimately, to Jesus. If you're broken this morning, God sits next to you. And he tells you, I love you. And he puts his arm around you. And he announces to you, in the work of Jesus, I've covered you. You you don't have to make excuses for your shame. It's, It's been dealt with. And even though he didn't deserve it, he rightfully accepts the blame. And in so doing, brings hope to a hopeless story. Can I pray with you?